0: Welcome back to episode 39 of First Principles. A few weeks ago, you heard the first part of my conversation with Anish Reddy, the CEO and co-founder of Capillary Tech, a software company offering products and services in the customer experience space. And you might remember that in that episode, Anish took me through the journey of Capillary in installments because, as he explained, Anish dreams in installments. The second installment were the years 2013 to 2018, which Anish called Capillary's confusing years. They were particularly difficult years for them. Having raised a massive amount of venture funding at an expensive valuation, Capillary started burning cash as they expanded ambitiously beyond India. The leadership had to justify the valuation, Anish said. The five years were an installment of success and excess. During this time, Anish's co-founder Krishna Mehra or KK, had moved to San Francisco in the US. Communication between the co-founders started breaking down even as the pressure on capillary started mounting. Eventually, both of Anish's co-founders left within months of each other. But before leaving, KK was upfront with Anish. Uh, and he felt that I'd kind of become a bully. Uh,
1: I think KK at least at least half of it he left for. The fact that I think I was
0: not workable with him at that point in time. Anish went to the capillary board and told them he wanted to quit. In the first part of my conversation with Anish, you heard this story. And in this second part, you'll hear the two things that Anish ended up doing to bounce back. The first was executive coaching. And I was a hard nut to
1: crack. So I think my exec coach had to take that extra effort to really say, no, 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 people have actually said this about you. (laughs) Right, so um, so it was pretty bad, you know, so halfway through the process, I, I was like, you know, I, I didn't sign
0: up for all this. Eventually, the coaching process proved to be so transformative for Anish that Capillary today offers executive coaching to not just its entire leadership team, but also all the way down to first time managers. The second, very interestingly, was Vipassana. It's a kind of meditation where you're asked to observe yourself, your breathing, the sensations on your body, your thoughts. Anish attended a 10-day Vipassana camp on the recommendation of a friend. For 10 days, you're allowed no distractions. You can't bring devices, any books, or even a piece of paper. You're not even allowed to talk to anyone. And as Anish explained, it was very difficult at first, but it changed him.
1: I think if you're an entrepreneur, you know, I think entrepreneurship is a... I've been very lucky as an entrepreneur, right? I think uh, uh, is a journey of self-discovery and self-purification more than anything else. Uh, especially if you run something for 15 years, I think you. there's no way you wouldn't have gone through bad cycles or tough times. And a vipassana in the middle, I think, just accelerates that process of
0: self-discovery and purification a lot more. Again... Anish drew so much from this process that employees of Capillary are allowed to go on a 10-day or 11-day Vipassana camp over and above their annual paid leave. In this episode, Anish talks to me about how these two interventions transformed him and Capillary. He takes me through both processes, day by day in case of Vipassana and how it made a difference to his temperament, leadership style and his approach to managing. We also talk about Anisha's fitness journey, finding a purpose in work and the future of capillary. I think this episode might be one of the most reflective and in-depth conversations I've had on first principles. I can't wait for you to hear it. Let's get into it. Anish, I'm going to take you back to the part earlier where your co-founders left. Um, I think um, KK called you a bully. I think around that time, if I'm not mistaken, you also went to the board and said, that's it, I'm done. I want to quit. And your board members said, uh, I think you said it was Venkat. Mm-hmm. Who said, no, 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 relax. You need some executive coaching. Yep. Take us back to that. Tell us. Tell us about, I mean... I'm sure at that point, you would have never explicitly or consciously have thought of executive coaching. Few founders have, especially if they've kind of grown businesses um, through the trenches themselves, right? Uh, what was your initial reaction and and what was the journey subsequently for you? You know, obviously, it, it came
1: at a point when uh, uh, I was very surprised, right, that uh, uh, that Someone and KK was a wingmate of mine back on campus, right? So we
0: so the relationship friendship knew each other for back, yeah. ten years
1: plus, and and we'd done many things together. Capillary was not necessarily our first startup. I mean, the E Cell was our first startup between mm. him and me. Capillary was the second, right? So, uh, so that coming from him obviously shook me up, uh, uh, you know. And when a co-founder is leaving in a super overvalued company, <laughs> it is a a different ball game altogether. Right, so uh, you will have miffed investors, you will have people who will feel that they've been taken for a ride, you'll have all that going on the side as well, Mm. right? Uh, and we had all of that obviously, right? And uh, uh, and
0: and and when was it that your second co founder also left, or was it around this time or later? They
1: left. Between about two three months of each other, yeah. You
0: know, so it was not so like. So I, I can imagine the investor pressure on you, and even if the investors didn't transmit that pressure, you as a founder would kind of imagine up that pressure, right? This is what they must be thinking of me, etc. and stuff like that. But again, like, yeah. back to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, and, and KK was also
0: a, a brilliant guy,
1: right? So the company always had two faces. Uh, it was KK and me, and. In fact, even if you look at the fundraise, we raised from two. Uh, KK managed one. I would manage the other. So right, so and when, when KK decided to move this this other. Obviously, felt like look, oh God, what's happening here, right? So it, it was just, it was just a. Uh, uh, so when um, and then obviously, you know, so I I did get <clears throat> beaten up a little bit both by myself and people around, and saying dude, kya right? So. Uh, so when Venkat suggested this exec coaching thing, I was like, yeah, for sure. You know, uh, I think you need to be vulnerable at the point when you get into a uh, exec coaching engagement. If, you know, it's like this, right? I think most founders have like three layers outside and deep inside as this secure, lonely founder, right? Uh, least I'm just quoting something that someone's told me here. Uh, right, so... Uh, and so you need to be vulnerable to let that guy inside come out, right? And
0: those three shields should have been cracked to some extent for you to feel that I need help. Very large extent, right? So, uh, and the exact coaching process, especially if you get a good
1: coach, uh, is 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 kind of like they break you down before they build you back. You know, so they do a three sixty, and you'll hear all kinds of stuff being spoken about you. Uh, and I was a hard nut to crack, so I think my exec coach had to take that extra effort to really say, no, 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 people have actually said this about you, <laughs> right? So um, so it was pretty bad, you know, so halfway through the process i, I was like, you know, I, I didn't sign up for all this, <laughs> right? So uh, luckily, I think, you know, um uh, as you, uh, I mean, I was I went to the Coaching Foundation of India for uh, my coaching and. Um, and he had broken this problem down to me saying only f- three behaviors to change. And in those three behaviors, here are the five things you will do. Right. So like one, the bully thing was basically, you know, saying, let people speak first. You'll be the last to speak in a meeting. Simple rule. Right. So when you're getting into a meeting, you're not going to start that meeting with saying, here is what we should do. Right. The way to do it is let everyone speak at the end. you give your views that is still fine. But, you know, so stuff like that, right? It's a very simple... So I think the process <laughs> was a easy one, right? So once I believed that, look, yeah, this is all people who are my close friends. There's no politics here. Uh, and they're telling me that, look, like, look, you need to change. Here are the things. So I think there was enough of acceptance on saying, ki, "Ha, I need to change. And once there is acceptance, I think the exec coaching process works. Right? So... And... And we've now, like, we have a very active exec coaching thing in Capillary. Like, all the leadership team goes to ALI, uh, the Asian Leadership Institute. They're really good. Uh, then everyone who's a first-time manager gets a coach. Like, a proper exec coach from outside. So, I think we've at least had 50, 60 people go through uh, coaching as a... How long has this been going on? I think almost for the last four, five years now. Even through COVID, we didn't cut the... Exit coaching and this program. must be a significant expense. we have now found coaches who don't charge us a lot, mm. right? So it's almost like, uh, uh, yeah, like uh, the exit coaching. Of course, I mean the ALI thing is expensive. It's not, mm. which is why it's restricted to only the uh, the top leadership team, right? Like 10, 12 people at max. Mm. Uh, then we have the LT minus one and all f- uh, uh, first time managers, right? Which any year will be like 30-40 people. So It'll be about a crore, crore and a half of expense in a year. Got it. But it's very worth it because then people stay with you for that much longer. I,
0: I think it, it's a no-brainer investment. Why you do you mean. think exact coaching helps so much?
1: Yeah, I think... Uh, and
0: and the concept, context for that is in organizations where it does not exist, you would assume that, hey, your manager or your peers or your HR, etc., are filling in to provide the mentorship, guidance, etc., that's required for you to grow and excel, right? Now, as opposed to another organization where there is this other individual who's not from your organization, but who's working with you to make it better. Why, why do you think this works better? I think first is the neutrality, right? I mean,
1: if I were to get, uh, let's say, the HR example you gave, right? Uh, Usually what would happen, someone would have said something about you, and then HR would have got involved and said, I want to do a 360 for you, right? Uh, And now you're anyway, as an employee getting into that situation with saying, biased HR, they have a, uh," you know, knock that off by saying, look, meet 10 people, you choose your exec coach. You go pick someone with whom you have chemistry, right? And that guy's only intent here is to make you a better person. And as a process, as a net outcome of that, also make capillary better, right? So I think the start point is is very different, right? The second thing I've realized is at least the exec coaches we have are all trained senior folks, you know, so uh, um, and they follow a process. There's a method to that madness, which I have not seen in like, you know, if how many your manager is never going to be like can never be your exact coach some might be but there is a deep method and madness to this right i mean uh and it's a lot of work i mean it's not a uh uh yeah so I, I, at least and even in spite of all this i think we've seen exact coaching work in 80% of the cases we have not seen it work in 20 got it.
0: and usually the thing is is the individual vulnerable or not right all so right. um I think earlier you were talking about the three things that your exec coach told you, right? The first one was like resolving the bully behavior by letting others speak. What were the other two? Were they confidential or?
1: Yeah, I actually don't remember them now. I've All right. Them, so them let them me ask this question differently. You know, what actually, was your I've actually had, another. I think you should go. I, I did another exec coaching engagement again in 2021. I think it's a good idea to do it every six, seven, eight years or four, five years, right? Because this time, of course, there was no bully behavior and,
0: <laughs> and such type stuff, but
1: there was still stuff which,
0: you know, I think are worth working on. So, so you personally do it as an interventional thing every few years, not as an ongoing thing?
1: Yeah, not All as right. an ongoing thing. Uh, right. Yeah, so it's not a business coach, it is more a, I get that. a behavior coach and a leadership personal coach. Personal growth,
0: right? personal leadership growth. That's okay. Right? What was your lead? How would you define your leadership style before you did your first executive coaching intervention, and after?
1: Uh, I think before, uh, yeah. So uh, I've been, uh, I, I'm generally been, uh, I've been lucky to have a, a very fast mind, which is what a lot of people. Around me at least say. What
0: your dad told you as well, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. So, and so the earlier me would be this, arrive at a conclusion very quickly and like tell people that do this. It's also right. the
0: engineering mindset, right? The solution, like, uh-huh. you know, let's, what's the quickest path to an efficient solution, right? right? Anything else is a waste of time. I think huh.
1: today, I think that that's changed quite a bit to, you still get to the solution. You can't stop your mind, right? You still get to the solution, but I think the approach now has been to say, ask questions which help them get to the same solution or get to a better solution, right? So that's the change. Uh, that's the piece of saying go last in a meeting, right? Uh, don't don't be the first to talk in a meeting. Be the last.
0: Especially as a founder, if you are the first one to speak in a meeting, it a biases everyone towards your solution, and b at Especially in like, you know, startups and organizations. They're like, why should I speak? The solution is already known and like, you know.
1: Absolutely. You know, and the second is I think culturally now, a lot of the org knows that you can say no to Anish and, you know, it'll still be fine, right? And I think we've also, we also have this very open culture of talking about failures. You know, so, and, you know, so when folks know that, okay, he, I mean, there is acceptance on failures on his part then they'll be that much open about saying i think you're thinking wrong about this or or pointing to you and saying you did the same thing 3 years ago <laughs> and it got
0: messed up right so yeah. sticking with the same theme how have you changed in the way you manage people right
1: um i think till till uh, uh, 2013 14 right so look i before that i was a manager at itc as well uh, but I used to run maintenance at a cigarette factory. Very different, right? The team that reported to me was a unionized team. So, uh, very different from managing, you know, uh, high quality talent and stuff like that. Uh, the other thing that we started in 2013-14 was, till then I would never do these one-on-ones. Because, you know, you were living in the same house. you know, So, what one-on-one, right? So, you will just chat. Wherever you're going, you're only talking business anyways. So now I think I have a far more, like, very... This was the learning from, like, the three founders staying in three different parts of the world, right? That, it's, that one-on-ones are extremely critical. And this one-on-one is not this random call you just said that you have solve it. But, like, a slotted half an hour, 40 minutes in your calendar, uh, every week, like, you know, where you actually uh, have... A present... A, where you're present, where you have a clean agenda saying, look, where can I help, where can I not? It's it's not your 10-minute chat to fix a problem, right? It's uh, And in fact, now, you know, in the last exec coaching engagement, I now have a format of how to run each one-on-one. Once a quarter, it's run very differently from the every week one. So so some of that structure, uh, I think, has really helped. Uh, we, in fact, now have a very formal skip-level process in the company as well where I do about 60-65 skip levels every every six months. You know, so again, very sad. Uh, I think some of that, you, I think as a management style helps because then, you know, uh, you're not taking things for granted that things are not getting communicated, right? So, uh, or people will come to you, right? When you have some of this, I think um, that's been one. I, I think we've always been a culture
0: of care, Right, so uh, that's not changed, whether it was before or now. Uh, is there is there anything that you changed your mind about when it comes to managing people? Um,
1: I do think, um, you know, I, I am an impatient guy. So I would have this thing of uh, following up. You know, I, I think it's a very common founder thing also. Right? You tend to follow up a lot. Uh I think over the last five, six years, I've brought that down to saying I will follow up only in the one on one, you know, so I I, on my phone, I have a list of things whenever I feel like following up, I I add a item to that individual's name saying, when I meet him next, let's follow up, let's not call him now, right? Because uh, what happens is when you call up uh, someone out of the middle, they change their priority order for you, it just messes the whole thing up, right? So that's one change, like basically taking care of my own follow up thing, in a more structured, organized, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, organized way. Um, The second is this, that uh, uh, I think, again, coming to the impatience, there was this big belief that get everything done this quarter, right? I think, thankfully, that's not the case with me now. I think I've really run the company into very wrong places by trying to do many things at the same time. I do think uh, building something best in class, uh, building something good takes time, right? So spreading things out over a period of time, uh, that's the other change, you know, I think from being the guy who would say, let's do all the 10 things that are on the sheet to saying, no, no, pick two uh, and pushing that down. I think that's the change in leadership styles as well, uh, that there is value in doing less Mm. and doing it well. Yeah, I'd say these two are the big changes, if you really ask me over the last... uh, yeah, five ten 10 years.
0: Vipassana is a big thing um, for you. And you you said earlier that you encourage employees to take, uh, you give them extra leave if they want to take like a 10-day, 11-day Vipassana break as well. Take us through, I mean, what was your first Vipassana like? 2020, right? Right. I mean, you went into it in a very stressed mindset. But what, what were the first, what was it, 11 days? 10 yeah, days? Yeah, it's... it's 10 days 1 plus 10 plus 1 so what were those 10 days like
1: you know so I think uh, uh, I was 35 when I did my first uh, uh, Vipassana so and by 35 uh, uh, especially if you've been meaningfully successful right your mind has built its own habit patterns right I mean it will judge a few things it will uh, like uh, it'll react a certain way to a certain things, right? So, and I had some of these very constant habit patterns, right? A uh, lot of negativity on, you know, where I had gone capillary to. Uh, some things on the personal side, like, uh, like I, I've always had a very angry relationship with my mother. And I think it's very common, most people have a very angry relationship with, with their mother. But, you know, uh, and she's also this... Uh, uh, high follow up, uh, you know, always wants to be in control. Uh, uh, lady, right? I mean, so uh, things like that, right? So there would be a few things which were definite landmines. Right? So the third thing was this, which was uh, for a long time, I think in that 2013 to 18 time frame, you know, you would see people raising these billions of dollars, this and you know, it would hit you, right? I mean, it, it takes you, I think now, I don't care, actually, but at that point in time, it would hit you, right? So there were some of these very standard patterns that you would, uh, you know, like things like when uh, when a senior employee left, right? you know, there were five or six or seven trigger points, which one of those happened, then you would have your set way of going through the rest of it, right? Which would just be a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of blame, a lot of shouting, all that stuff, right? So uh so what happens in a in a vipassana is essentially you're trying to uncondition yourselves from all these conditionings, right? So so the first three days, three and a half days, you basically just look at your breath. So you sit for cross-legged on a cushion, uh, for roughly ten hours a day. Starts in the morning at four thirty, uh, until the evening nine, uh, and it's one, one hour slots, right? So you you sit for ten hours a day, right? So the First three and a half days is just breath, right? So you, all you're trying to do is stop your mind from
0: wandering, right? So if by it, focusing on the breath, yeah.
1: So basically, try and break those habit patterns, right? So the <coughs> and first how time, how hard was it? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I would, I'd, I'd lie if I said that it was very easy. Uh, it was hard, uh, obviously. Uh, you know, I think you, uh, um, like sitting cross legged. You don't talk to anyone, which I think is the easiest part there. Most people freak out when you say that 10 days you can't talk to anyone. But the easiest part of the Vipassana is not talking to anyone, right? Uh, uh, I think what also happens is, look, you've never given yourselves 10 days with yourself. right? So a lot of your extremely deep, um, like if you're in a meeting and this thought of, you know, your messed capillary comes up. In another five minutes, someone's going to say something, you want to reply, you're done. Right, so this thought is gone, but here you're sitting with that thought for that full hour, unless you get to that moment when you pull yourselves back and say, "I was not supposed to think about that. I'm supposed to be like looking at Hoping my breath." On the breath that's right? right, so uh, so it is hard, right? I mean, you, uh, I've I've seen, uh, I've seen. I mean, even I've had my own moments when I broke down, right? So uh, I've seen people in the room break down as well. Uh, it is hard, right? So it's it's definitely not. Uh, but the good piece is, look at the end of the f- the three and a half, four days, you I think get to a 50 60% cleaner mind, right? Because the same anxieties you have or the same worries you have or the same, you know, thought patterns you have, they would have diminished like greatly, because they would have come to you 100 times. And then after some time, you would have gone back to your breath on each of those 100 times, right? So essentially making that 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 week, uh, in some senses, right? So, then the next three, four days, uh, uh, you're supposed to look at sensations on your body, right? So, uh, uh, and I think the first, by the fifth or sixth day, your knees are going to be in like 10x the pain, right? Because you're not habituated to sitting cross-legged. And uh, and somewhere on the day four, they introduce this thing of don't move for an hour, three times a day. The full hour, don't move. Till then you can move, you can do whatever you want to do, right? So, uh, and so essentially what you're being accustomed to is to say that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional, right? So you're kind of trying to build this resilience to saying, look, uh, I mean, you don't control what's being thrown Postum at you by life. Yeah. Hmm. You don't control what's being thrown to you by life or even your own thoughts, right? I mean, you don't control your own thoughts. So, um. So, that was the other thing. So, the next three days was really this uh, building resistance to pain. So, I think somewhere on the eighth day, I could sit for... Actually, need to sit for an hour without moving. I, I think I ended up sitting for an hour and a half. Right, so, you... Uh, you know, I think it's... it's an And and then you have this discourse every evening. You know, where... Uh, in a very self-deprecating way. I mean, self-deprecating as in, you know... Uh, as in Goenka, who's uh, whose videos are played and who gives the instructions in a very self-deprecating way he will talk about things which you will associate with self-deprecating for him not for you but uh think that's a good way to also realize that look i think it's yeah it was it was transformative right those 10 days was uh uh, uh i thought i was amazed at how much i changed in those 10 days the first thing i did was i called my anant Uh, and said, look, I think we should make this uh, uh, open to everyone. And his first reaction was, I don't think anything has changed. You still have come back with these ideas. (laughs) And then finally, he went for a Vipassana, uh, like six, seven months later, he came back and said, yeah, I think we should make it for everyone. (laughs) Uh, But it is a, uh, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you know, I think entrepreneurship is a, I've been very lucky as an entrepreneur, right? I think, uh, uh, is a journey of self-discovery and self-purification more than anything else. Uh, especially if you run something for 15 years, I think you there's no way you wouldn't have gone through bad cycles or tough times. And um, and I think it is it is a journey of self-discovery and self-purification, right? So And a vipassana in the middle, I think, just accelerates that process of self-discovery and purification a lot more. Yeah.
0: You said earlier... That like, you know, beyond a certain amount of wealth, it really makes no difference. And you've gone through your own ups and downs as well. So today, what really drives you to wake up every day, to come to work every week, to continue to strive? What drives you? You know, I think even when we started, right? Uh, when we started
1: these billion dollar valuations, all, all this was not there. Like right? so It was 2008 and the people you looked up to was the Narayan Murtis, right? Extremely simply dressed and very high principles and, and in feel-like cultures, right? So so the start point of Capillary was also always saying, let's build a great organization. A good culture organization I think was far more than the side of uh so that is still something we I think we are on a journey of, right? So uh, I do think uh like in capillary we we uh one stated goal for the company, uh, like our purpose statement is, we are here to help brands build meaningful, uh, delightful experiences with their customers and to help our team build, uh, like meaningful lives, right? So a meaningful, I mean, uh, this whole Vipassana experience for me was saying, look, there are more dimensions to life than just money, right? And, and happiness has definitely got to do a lot more with you with what you're inside and what you're feeling inside uh, than what's happening outside, right? So so in Capitalism, we now have a inner peace initiative where about 100 folks have done a one-day retreat, which either I run or Anant runs or funny, uh from Red Bus. Uh, we're experimenting with stuff. We do believe that uh, companies need not be only about your job and about the money you make. I think it can be a lot more holistic uh, in that sense. So, that's the org part, right? I, I definitely think there is a lot more figuring to do on that part, and we spend significant time on 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 that side. Uh, uh, that keeps me driven. That look I think, this is an unsolved problem, which uh, very few orgs have looked at that way, right? You. Uh, the second, of course, I think is, uh, I, I you know, I've been told so many times that you can't build product companies out of India, that there is this thing in me or Keep in the company. That. To say, look, we have to go out and build the best product company in our space. Uh, And that's a few things, right? I mean, that's uh, beyond just the best product. It's also about having the best companies in the world work for you. Do You have a significant share of uh, the Fortune 500, for example. Uh, You know, our do-all analysts. Everyone say that, look, this is the best product. So a bunch of that stuff, right? So that's the other thing that
0: uh, keeps us... uh, you know, uh, motivated. Yeah. Do you have any favorite mental models? Are you, are you do you use a, tend to use a lot of mental models in your decision making, or what's your management style when it comes to decision making?
1: You know, I think uh, a few mental models. Uh, yes. Uh, obviously, I think context is king. Is the first right? So, uh, uh, I think uh, you could be very smart about your decisions. Uh, or you could have very smart people taking decisions, but if they don't have the right context, then it is, it's not going to work, right? So, uh, so, luckily in Capillary, we've had people stay for a long, in fact, now I have this mental model that if someone's not been in the company for, the real value add of people actually starts in year three. So, I really don't know how startups with two-year life cycles of employees like, can build great businesses for the future. Right? Because, you I mean, until you've made some mistakes, you've been through the hard times together, I don't think the bonding happens in a business, right? So the next time you actually want to go through a hard time, you will have all the folks who have not seen this forming happen really stay with you, right? So, uh, so this context piece, so before we decide anything, I think we do take a lot of time on <coughs> figuring context, which is speaking to internally, externally, like anything we do now I speak to like another 10 startups saying guys like what did you guys do what were, which situation were you in at that point in time as well right so uh the other mental model is of course that uh, this whole this vipassana thing is of course put me on a on a different journey of spirituality and some of that uh purpose has been one question I've always asked myself right so whether it was ITC, whether it was MIT, any of those calls always had this question of, you know, uh, what's your purpose in life in some senses? And uh, I think one mental model that's there now comes from a little bit of Advaita, a little bit of Buddhism is, uh, I think what has to happen is going to happen, right? Uh, The way we have got here, the only way we could have got here is the way it happened, right? So don't stress out too much about uh, you know, uh, like when things go bad, we tend to, like, really blame ourselves or blame something on it. I, I sometimes feel that we miss the bigger picture of why that might have happened. Like, for example, if COVID didn't happen, if we didn't go through all the mess that we did between 2013 to 18 or 19, I don't think we would have reinvented ourselves and got to this place. Right. So, and so I, I do believe Till that point, I think I was a reasonable atheist. Now I think I'm a I'm a I'm a believer more than uh, more than anything else. That I think the universe conspires to do the right thing for you, uh, and but it need not be that it's going to be like good for you. They're going to be local minima's which then lead to global maxima's, right? So I think that's that's a thought point as well. That if something doesn't how go do you, well,
0: how do you balance this? while also being CEO of a company and you're setting goals and ambitious growth targets, et cetera, and stuff like that. Because at some level, this is like what has to happen, will happen, must be balanced with, but we had set out to do this. And why has this not happened? So, I mean, when, when your employees, when your peers come to you, et cetera, and stuff like that, I'm sure there is sometimes a stress, right? You can't always just say, you know. So I think focus on stuff that you can control. Hmm. Right. Focus on the inputs. <laughs>
1: focus on is that individual doing the right things? Right. Uh, if, if
0: it's about hitting a goal or something, is is capillary a inputs driven organization or an output slash goals metrics driven organization? We
1: are. Uh, I mean, of course, you you can't run an org without output metrics and stuff. But under every output metric, you have five inputs. So. And life is such, right? You can hit all those five input metrics, and still the output might <laughs> be whatever it is. So, so you when you
0: do OKRs, you obviously go. So you run long. on OKRs. Yeah. We or run was on OKRs. this part of the X to 10x intervention as well?
1: Yeah, it was part of the X to 10x intervention. We, we, I wouldn't say we, I don't think we did OKRs the OKR way earlier. You'd have goals and stuff, but yeah. So, so it's so you do have metrics, you do have numbers which people can look at. But what you judge people on is inputs more than outputs, right? Because I think inputs
0: are in your control, right? So, yeah. how long have you been running OKRs?
1: About four years now.
0: And and what's your, uh, you know, from the first year to now, what's been the? I mean, if you were to distill down some of the learnings on running a successful OKR program, what would they be? Yeah, you know, I think
1: uh, uh, I think it it helps a lot with aligning the company on like. Uh, we use the extra next tool as well. So they can actually anyone can look at what the goals for the company and and how it drills down. Right. So, so it helps with that part because, you know, uh, and everyone's aligned on saying here are the four big rocks for the company for, uh, for this year. Right. So, uh, I think earlier when we did OKRs, it was not as top down. It was a little bit of, okay, what are you doing? We'll put your OKR in that kind of stuff. Uh, I think especially in a startup, right, if the again, going back to the question of how are you adding value to the bigger picture, right? Most people like to work in startups for the purpose, for the value they're adding, for the culture, some of that, I think, I think it gets solved pretty nicely. You know, I, I would struggle for many years with this question of how do you align like 500 people to like, say, here are the, now here's a clean way, right? Every time they log into the tool, they can see. <laughs> That here are the five things you want to do this year.
0: Got it. Is there anything that you're paranoid about?
1: Uh, good question. Uh, yes, there are. Uh, again, uh, I think, uh, you know, this question of purpose keeps haunting me. Right. So uh, haunting is a bad word. But <clears throat> I don't know, like, what is the eventual purpose of life it is a question which, you know, I don't think I've found an answer to Uh uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I do read up a lot, you know. So there's the, the last year, year and a half has been a lot of Advaita and a lot of Buddhism, uh, but again, the question of uh, you know, I think a company can have like, what is the purpose of life, and especially, and the answer I'm looking for is a non-transient answer, right? Uh, sometimes you have purposes which, you know, let's say it's your first job is to say I'll get to financial independence and then you know whatever, whatever, whatever right? so uh but yeah, I think that's a question that does uh that I'm kind of paranoid about that look, what is the answer to this and what's the path to it?
0: Yeah. Right. Um uh, switching to a bit of personal questions. I think you said somewhere that you were a couch potato till twenty thirteen. What yeah. changed after that?
1: You know, I think uh so so till twenty 20- 20, 2008 to ITC was also a fairly uh, high stress job. right? I was running maintenance for a cigarette factory. Uh, it, it used to be a, a, a high stress job. Uh, so it was not like I had a lot of time. right? So till, till 2006 to pre-2006 you were anywhere at IIT. Quality of food at IIT is a I don't need to talk about it. So 2006 to I think 12 was years when you know you would live on one meal a day. I mean, not because you couldn't eat the other meal, but you're just so busy with stuff, right? And it usually would be your you'd have a beer for dinner, and then you'd have some food, and then you're like done, and then the next day starts, right? I got married in 2012, uh, and then I put on I went from 72 kilos to like 90 kilos in about 18 months.
0: Right. you're just not used to eating food <laughs>
1: so i would come home uh or i would get you know like uh like i'd come home and then there'd be amazing food at home one two i would get a lunchbox home and then you know it was just it was just you know and whatever right you eat ice creams this that so i'd suddenly gone from this this not lean but let's say like okay-built okay, okay built guy, 72 kilos to like 90, right? So, uh, and I think it was early 2014 uh, uh, when we went out for a friend's bachelor's to Bali and we were trying to uh, surf. Bali has these... And for my life, I couldn't stand up on that damn thing. <laughs> you know, I realized that, look, this is uh, this is like too much. And, and the same thing was happening with everyone around me as well. Because, you know, we were all... Uh, folks who were kind of getting married around the same time we were all putting on it i think marriage is one point when you start <laughs> putting on weight after right so we then started a running club in uh in capillary we would all head to Cabern every sunday morning uh that switched the the thing uh, for me and you know again running is also very meditative right i mean i, I don't run now but uh why do you stop Yet what happened was, you if when you're running, you also need to make sure you hit the gym and all that stuff, right? So, so, so I did a
0: lot of running. Limited from, amount of time to do X number is that what it is? Uh-huh, or you're saying running yeah. burns calories, so you need to like put on muscle. No, 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 which no, what, what happened with me was I I injured my
1: knees a little too bad, ah, got right? It. So, it was like so from 2014 to 2017 18. I think I, I don't know, I did some 20 half marathons and like, it was just crazy, right? So, uh,
0: found a very thing, right? Like, you know, you chance upon something and, and then, then you over-index on it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The either there is a joke that like, either you're du- it's set to off or it's set to max. There's exactly. nothing in the middle.
1: Exactly. So I hurt my knees, uh, uh, and then it started hurting my back. And so then the doctor basically said, look, I think your running days are over. Start yoga. So I, I do an hour of yoga every morning, right? So that's, uh, that's replaced the running uh, uh, and then an hour of Vipassana. So two hours is like a lot of time to spend on yourself every day. Yeah, But mm-hmm. that's, so the couch potato everything changed hence, you know, it was just
0: super overweight and everyone else so, around was also. So it went uh, from uh, overweight to running and now to yoga and Vipassana. That's your fitness routine now? Yeah.
1: An hour of hour of yoga every morning and an hour of Vipassana is is uh, at least six days a week, let's say.
0: You also use the analogy of running a startup to being like running a marathon. Yep. It is actually, right? If you think about it. Uh, they is both taxing physically as well as mentally, because you also talked about running is a mental activity as well. Right? So do you want to tell us what, I mean... About that analogy of running and like, you know, uh, running a startup as well.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, especially when you're a 22 year old starting up, you really run like, it's like a sprint, right? All out. It's like a sprint, like all out, right? So, uh, and then that leads to a lot of burnout, like I mentioned, uh, and stuff, right? So, so again, when you're prepping for a marathon, you know, the first thing you do is you're told not to run too fast right so uh, I think something applies very well to a startup as well if you think about it uh,
0: like if someone told you back when you were starting up that look you'll be doing this for the next 20 years I would
1: probably build it very differently right in in fact that's when we opened the US as a market or now we're opening Europe my approach has been that saying this is a 10 year build I'm going to take my time right (laughs) so frustrates key employees that you hire sometimes saying like what kind of a guy is this he doesn't want things moving fast but you know, that's the right way to build, I feel, right? So, uh, even in running, right? If you, in fact, we, I joined the Janagar Jaguars, which is a running club. I don't know if you heard of them. Um, and they break it down nicely for you, right? So, there is a certain 180 beats per minute is, I mean, 180 beats per minute. That's the zone. Is typically the, the, the pace at which you have least injuries, uh, at which you're most optimally, you know, burning energy, etc. Right? Some of that stuff, I mean, even in startups, if you look at the startup equivalent for it, you never think of it that way, right? Like, you never, uh, like this, this back in this back ending injury thing. If I had asked around saying, look, should I do it? Should I like go to the gym? I'm sure people have said, yeah, you have to do both if you're overrunning so much. In startups, again, you don't do that usually. How many times do you actually go out and are vulnerable? with another founder and say that look I'm trying to build this but I'm messing it up uh, lots of parallels I feel uh, and running is especially long runs are extremely meditative
0: right so because you're alone with yourself and your own you know, alone with and
1: yourselves like and you know because I was trying to get to this 180 beats per minute rhythm I instead of playing music I would just play a, a, you know something that gives me the beats so I just had to and so that also like really calms you down, like because your mind is just focused on... It's almost on...
0: like the equivalent of a focusing on your breath, right? Because you're correct. focusing on those constant beats. Correct,
1: correct. So yeah, no, I, I think being physically and mentally fit, I think definitely adds a lot of value to your startup. What does personal time for you look like? Personal as in family or personal?
0: I mean, I'll let you answer it the way you feel comfortable.
1: You know, so I, I I do my vipassanas, uh right. So uh so 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 you, you know, there's someone who gave me this uh um four ways, four four buckets you should uh look at life, right? So one was professional, personal, uh spiritual and and family. Right. So uh and so I try and do a good like every. Uh, we night.
0: get we get professional We get spiritual, we get family. What's personal? Personal is, uh, you know, I think like uh,
1: for me, like an hour or two a day is what I really try to keep for personal, uh, right? So I uh, get up in the morning at 4.30. 5 to 6 is an hour of Vipassana. 6 to 7 is is yoga. Our yoga instructor comes in, so 6 to 7 is yoga. And then typically, off late, I try and read a book in the morning, like seven to, the kids are gone to school by like, the school bus comes at six thirty, and they're gone, right? So, How old are your kids? Uh, seven and 10. Uh, right. So, yeah, so you get done by, uh, I'd say, uh, like, read an hour of, of books, eight, nine, something like that. Uh, because we have a large US business now, I've kind of changed my work timings around a little bit, right? So... Uh, and I think some of this is consciously doing it helps. Uh, and I get to office only by ten, and I get out of office at three. Right? So again, three to six is time with the How kids. How is I your son, office from home? Fifteen minutes. Uh. You know, HSR and Harlow Road. So, uh, so three to six is again time with kids and family. Because what I was realizing was my son is ten now. Another two years he'll be gone. <laughs> right. So, uh, so so three I head back home. Uh, Sorry, why will he be gone? He'll be gone as in, you know, by, I don't think 12, 13, your
0: kids will spend any time with you, you know, so. Oh, my son's turning 14 next month. <laughs> but does he spend time with you? Well, yeah, I guess. Oh. No, but I mean, it's it's not so much a question. Yeah, you're absolutely right, right? Like, you know, I mean, they do develop into, I think, their own selves, like, you know, mini adult selves by the time they're teenagers and stuff like that.
1: But I guess it's but they also have their own world of friends and they want to go spend time with them. And yeah. Hasn't with all that started?
0: interest and stuff like that. But I think, yeah, I mean, to be honest, as a parent, I mean, um, the reason I asked you this question was because my mental model is that they're here with you till they're 17, then they're off. So when you said at 12, they're off, I was like, wait, what did I miss? Right? Yeah. So no, I think it's, you have a lot of stuff to look forward to when they become teenagers. I mean, I agree. Yeah but you know i think the
1: like i think the reality dawned on me in the summers this year when uh, so we spend our summers typically in in hyderabad right parents are there uh, in-laws are there and all that right i travel in and out uh, and so this time he said look i don't want to go to hyderabad and and he he's very close to the grandparents and he said look i don't want to go to hyderabad i have my friends here so that is when it dawned to me saying look hey i think it's not like you have as much time as you think you have, right? So Perhaps,
0: uh, I mean, the transactional way to, or a simpler way to look at that would be that he's just saying that I want more interesting ways to spend my summer vacation, perhaps, right? Not necessarily that, I mean, with all due respect to spending time with grandparents. I mean...
1: Uh, he has a gala time with grandparents. Yeah. It's just that I think he's got to an age ah. now where he finds... There is, to be more there is competition. There is competition. Absolutely. He is a <laughs> left to him. He'll he'll go to hide for a weekend or anything like that, right? So, uh, yeah. So that the other thing. I have, so three to six is with uh, uh, we've lunch together at least mm. one meal, uh, and then six to ten is the US shift. So mm. kind of broken it that way. But personal times is uh, is uh, every weekend I try and do three four hours of uh, uh, a longer vipassana sitting, uh, and then. Once in a year, you go for a full Vipassana. And uh, once in a year, I'm trying to start serving a Vipassana course. I did that last year. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I can make that a regular as well. Yeah, so that's personal time for you. So probably 20 days plus a little bit more
0: uh, right. every week. You read... Um, what? What's a good book that you could recommend to us that you've read recently?
1: Uh, interesting. Interesting. Um, you know i think from a uh uh i chanced upon this book called uh, uh you you would i'm guessing know samir Guglani, Morpheus No, yeah that's right that's right yeah, like so the
0: uh, i think ori- earlier generation the OG. Of,
1: that's right yeah yeah samir uh so samir I recommended this book called the surrender experiment uh hmm. it's by a guy called michael singer yes have you, have you I have it? it, I have it.
0: Yeah, so... I haven't started reading it. I I bought it heck, second to after. It's, uh, there's another book also as well, Michael Singer. I forget. It's, it's called The Untethered Soul. That's right, The Untethered Soul.
1: I, I think Surrender Experiment is the first read. And then you should read the. Oh, is it? I'm yeah, reading yeah, it yeah. the other way around then. Yeah. but So, again, he's an entrepreneur, built a uh, whatever, right? So, large medical software play. And, and he basically writes a story of... Uh, Uh, How he surrendered uh, to life at like 22, 23 or 24 something like that. And how how things happened in life, right? So, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, at least me, uh, I've always been this, I think till my first Vipassana happened, you're always very in need for control, right? In need for control on outcomes, in need for control on, uh, so that was a, I call that as a bridge to
0: spirituality type book. Uh, you know, that, that was an interesting book to read. Yeah, I think Michael Singer does a good job of, I think, bridging Eastern spirituality with, I think, the Western logic-focused mindsets that a lot of us are more used to. So I think his book does bridges that very well. You put it very well, actually. Correct. So, uh, yeah, so th- that started
1: me off on reading more on the spirituality side, I think. Uh off late i've been i've been doing a lot of reading on uh on the buddha uh you know i think it's buddha and avinamashi avinamashi actually didn't write much uh buddha on the other hand has tons of so it's very interesting uh, i mean this is of course probably not very relevant here but uh like the advaita piece and the uh, buddhism are are slightly different but very similar although they've been interpreted very very differently uh So I'm now reading a book on, uh, uh, by this, again, Western, uh, by a guy called uh, uh, John Yates. What he's trying to do is he's trying to apply uh, neuroscience on on Buddhism. And basically the Buddha's teaching on how you should meditate. Very interesting book on, uh, because I've never seen anyone say, here is a path the to... behind it. Here mm. is a path to awakening.
0: <laughs> right? So this one's one of those weird... <laughs> All right. ...attempts, so... Yeah. Uh, is there something that, like, other than Vipassana, of course, which you geek out on a lot, is there anything else that you've been, like, you know, which is a hobby or a passion that you've been geeking out lately? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the last two years have been very, very high on... Uh, on the spirituality side, uh, right, so, so, I, I, I've been keying out a fair bit on this, Advaita versus, versus Buddhism thing, uh, all right,
0: that's, that's fine, what's yeah. the most interesting vacation, that you went to recently, or oh, whatever, like, over the like last few years, uh, interesting, that's
1: a good one, uh, we, uh, so, Anant and I, Anant was my co-founder, and, at Capri Now, uh, both of us did the Grand Canyon, and, to rim uh, this is a, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's basically, uh, you go all the way into the canyon and then you climb up, right? So it's a, it's a 45 kilometer walk. Uh, and in that 45 kilometer walk, you lose one and a half, 1.6 kilometers in altitude and you gain 1.6 kilometers in altitude back. So that's one and a half Buj Khalifas being gained and lost uh, on the same day, Uh we had definitely not, I mean, we, we you, you know, we've done 100 kilometer walks together, the Oxfam thing and stuff. But so this one was, uh, we were told, you know, do two hikes and you'll be prepared for it. It was very interesting. I, I thought it was a, it was, again, peeling a few layers off on, on yourselves. Because I think with the, with most hikes is you climb first and then you head down, right? This one's you go down first and then you climb, and uh, so the last, uh, uh, I'd say the last fifteen kilometers, uh don't even the last fifteen kilometers. Actually, the last five miles is when you climb one Bocch Khalifa. Up. And I, I thought mentally for both of us, it was a, it was a, it was an aha that you, you know you're almost on the crossroads of being a zombie or hallucinating, especially if you're not. There'll be people around who would be like you know, doing it like it's their morning walk. <laughs> and then here you would be like totally like murdered uh, on it. So I think that was a, that was a, I'd say pushing the limits too far experience very recently within this mid October, uh, about
0: three months ago. That sounds yeah. fascinating. Is there, is there a entrepreneur that are there entrepreneurs that you kind of uh, look to or look up to uh, when you think about building great businesses that last? Mm-hmm. Great question actually. Um, you know, I think obviously uh, there's, I, I,
1: I, I like what the Infosys folks have done. Uh, at least the version mm-hmm. 2010, uh, for sure, right? I think it's a incredible story of uh, uh, staying to the principles, taking the hard calls, uh a lot of that uh right so so the Infosys is founders for sure uh right so um the the other folks in the in the more contemporary generations i think uh, are Naveen at Enmobi again right I mean he's he's been at it he's done the right things uh, uh for just such a long time now uh, uh in the SaaS worlds I think uh, Sudhir at Zanoti uh again uh, it's just second or third startup, so you see the maturity of, uh, of, you know, running a marathon and not doing a sprint and uh, and some of that stuff. Uh, yeah, I think of the of the folks from the Indian side, I would I'd put these.
0: Yeah. You're a parent. What is what do you observe about the way your kids see the world versus what you did when you were their age? I think, uh,
1: uh, you know, upbringing has a big impact on kids, right? I think we as a generation were probably what I tend to call as the hungry generation. You know, we were brought up with a lot of hunger, right? That you have to uh, prove a point, you have to be successful in life, uh, you have to... Uh, I don't know how you were brought up, but I thought most of us were kind of brought up yeah. brought up that way, right? So, uh, I think this generation... I think we as parents are kind of wanting to bring them up to be happy, right? I mean, I, I don't know if that's... Yes, you know, so, Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, I'm sure our parents also wanted us to be happy, but their definition of happiness was hunger, achieve, and then you'll get to happy. I think our definition of happiness is a little bit different. Job security led to happiness <laughs> earlier. Yeah, <now>. exactly. <laughs> right? exactly. So I, I, I do see that play out a lot on the kids. Uh, like, I think the... Uh, and hence they're like, you know, what? sun turned 10 right so we were we went to a small trek on uh, in the in Kurg and while we were climbing up I asked him look so so what do you want to do like just uh, this I mean casual question on saying he'll, he'll I thought he'll give me an answer of saying I want to be a scientist or a, you know that like someone asked me that when I was a kid I said scientist right so uh, and I was asked and I did give this answer when I was a kid right and he said I want to be happy so I was like, okay.
0: <laughs> For a minute, you were taken aback. <laughs> For a while, actually. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> you know, so I think the
1: our kids definitely see the world very differently from the way uh, we saw it. right? And I also think this is a generation that uh, probably will need to answer the question of purpose a lot earlier. Because they won't have that you know do, do you have enough money is your education going to be good a lot of those questions that we probably grappled with when we were children I don't think are going to be questions I, I think are going to be questions these folks will take like for granted that right? So, so I think the sooner you put them on the path of finding purpose I think the more happy they would be you know uh, at least I feel even they are probably trying to answer that for themselves in some sense Uh, like my son does sit for 10-12 minutes once or twice a week with me when I sit down to meditate as well so I think he's also probably that side of it a little bit
0: it was a lovely chat Anish, thank you so much for coming on the show
1: thanks thanks Ron, thanks so much for it